Hey everybody, Duncan Fletcher here with Pads. We're back for another podcast. Hope everyone here is doing well. Uh, a little bit of a switch up here. Stephanie Thorburn is on the shelf. We've got Danielle Burrell with us. Danielle's been helping us out here with the Pads Summit, and we're very fortunate she'll be riding shotgun as we have our podcast here with a couple of folks from down under. Very fortunate for to have from the Melbourne Storm, Brian Fallon. Actually, no, Brian, I didn't even ask you. How do I pronounce your name? Is it Fallon? Did I say that correctly? Uh, Feeling. Feeling. Okay, yeah. there we go. Hep just wrote that down. So very fortunate here to have Brian Phelan and Peter Robinson with us from the Melbourne Storm in Australia, one of the most winning organizations in the National Rugby League. Again, gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time to join us early morning from Australia. No worries. A pleasure. Yeah, good to be. Excellent. Well, we'll we'll jump right in. So I guess one of the things I think is really interesting is that um, you guys are working in an organization that is renowned for its focus on accountability, family, community, and it's led to an organization that's been unbelievably successful over a period of roughly 25 years. I believe it's been uh, 11 grand finals, uh, six premierships, if I'm not mistaken, um, maybe I could get you guys to talk a little bit about the Melbourne Storm as an organization and, and maybe why your approach is a little bit different and how it's allowed you guys to be successful. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it's been a short history, I guess, compared to a lot of other sporting clubs and different codes in Australia. So it's, uh, we're celebrating our 25th year this year. And I think those stats you reeled off there, probably correct, I think. Well, I didn't, yeah. I presume, but uh, it's been a, a fairly rich and enjoyable history, that's for sure. So big year this year for the club, cel- celebrating our, our 25 years. So it's a bit of a unique sort of structure that we have because we're the, we're the only team located in Melbourne. It's a little bit unique, certainly in our space as well, because all in Melbourne, it's very much dominated by a different code. AFL is a dominant code down here in terms of um, sport or football code anyway, um, from a sort of historical perspective. You know, AFL's sort of been around, largely sort of grew big out of Melbourne from, you know, 150 years sort of thing, whereas rugby leagues, you know, Melbourne Storm started in, in 1998. So coming from a fair way back, so it's dominated by by AFL in terms of all the junior sports and everything. So a lot of young young people, as they grow up historically in Melbourne, rugby league wasn't really, a, a you know, a sport, you know, back then that that sort of people that young kids played so but we've sort of had a pretty big impact in the past 25 years but in terms of recruiting our players into our organization now at that elite level they generally all come they don't really come from Melbourne I think in our 25 years we've only had four players that have come through our local ranks to um out of 230 odd players who have represented represented the club at the top level so uh, we generally relocate all our players from from elsewhere in in Australia. Obviously, Queensland and New South Wales are the dominant rugby league states. So, but also the the Pacific Islands, you know, New Zealand or you know Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, those those areas as well. So, so it's a unique unique sort of position for us from a well being perspective because they all move here, um, whether they're young single blokes or whether they're older and married with partner and kids. So. It does have its unique challenges, I suppose. So maybe that's an interesting jumping off point, you know, to kind of pull the thread on that a little bit more. Is I know that, uh, as you said, you have people coming from 
all these different communities. I believe I read that you guys have had a total of 22 different cultures roll through your organization over your existence. And I know, Peter, you were the first Indigenous player to play for the Melbourne Storm. Maybe I could get you guys to talk a little bit about how you guys approach the player welfare side of things when you're looking at it through that cultural lens in order to help folks assimilate into your culture and the, the broader community that you're trying to compete and live in. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, certainly with, with our club, nothing happens in isolation. It just isn't because we've got good players or good coaches or good performance staff, good physios, good doctors, good CEO. It's all connected. And, you know, we've had 230 players that have earned the right to wear our jump. And, and I say earned the right because we're not the destination. We're not the club for everybody. And it's like that rite of passage, a boy becoming a, a man, a girl becoming a woman. You've got to earn that right. And everything that we've achieved, has come off the back of a hard worker mentality. And day one in our induction is we ask the players, why are you here? Why is this important for you? Because you need to understand that because when things get hard and tough and maybe you want to not get out of bed or pick yourself up, that knowing your why is maybe the one reason why you keep going. So 230 players have played for us and that's relatively low for being, being around for 25 years. There's been, as you said, 22 different cultures and, and our view on that is if culture is important to one of us, it's important to all of us. And don't think there's any better way than getting to know your, your teammate or a workmate is, is spending time with them and understanding what's important in their culture, what part of their culture is important to them and why. And then when you can bring that together in a space with mutual respect, I think that builds a fairly good brotherhood that's really hard to put into words. And so when we get new players, regardless of, of who they are, everyone has different wants and different needs. And so the role Brian and I play is working out what that is for them and then trying to make that work into the Melbourne Storm structure whilst you're also acknowledging their own individual, I suppose, gifts that they bring both both culturally and, and there is their talent and skills as well. I love that. I think one thing that you said that really stuck out to me is if culture is important to one of us, it's important to all of us. Do you ever have players that are new to your organization that don't necessarily agree with that model? And then how do you integrate them into that? Or do you know that bringing players on, is that the understanding that they need to value everyone's culture and value everyone equally? Yeah, I think more to the second sort of point you made there is, is um, yeah, I can't really ever recall having someone in who's probably, you know, resisted that that um, philosophy or, or um, value, I guess, as, as a club. When we recruit Players, there's usually a fair lead-in to, you know, before you'd actually sign a player and bring him to your club. So sort of around about now it's done a little bit differently than sort of certainly other codes. But, you know, you, when a player comes off contract, he can he can begin discussions with clubs, you know, sort of six, 12 months before. So, you know, we, we can start the ball rolling, talking to players and our recruiting guys are, and I guess uh, are doing their evaluation of, you know, players before they'd actually offer them a contract and then we then get into, once they've sort of got to that stage, they hand over to us and we'll start dialogue with, with new players, you know, sometimes four to six months before they actually come here. So you, you begin to get to know them then and what, what makes them tick, what they're, what's important to them, you know, whether they have a family, what their situation is and, and try to make arrangements then. So that's when really the indoctrination starts and then it, it probably builds a lot more, obviously, once they get here. And the first three months is pretty pretty intense from in terms of, you know, induction into our, into our club culture, some of the things that Peter was talking about. 
But I reckon as well as a club culture, I think most people that come here understand, as BP just said, about that, that initiation period because we've done profile on each year on, on what plays we're getting, but I don't think you really know who you got until you see some under fatigue and pressure. That's when you really get to see what qualities people have, who's going to be the whingers, who's going to be the ones that roll their sleeve up no matter how hard things get. So for that first two weeks of our program, we've done it for 20 years, we do a work program. So regardless of what money you're earning, regardless of what status you got in the game, when you come to the Melbourne Storm, you need to bring a pair of steel cap boots. And it's labour-intensive work, it's uncomfortable work, and that's designed that way, and it's unpaid work. So these guys are in the gym at, you know, early in the morning. They're on the job site at 7.30. They do eight hours of work, and then they're back again to train again in the afternoon. For a whole host of reasons, it's a gratitude piece. You know, be grateful for what you're doing in your life right now. It helps that conversation with your career plan. Because if you don't want to do nothing, well, that crowbar that you're swinging on at the start of the season, that may be your only option at the moment. And it really starts that humility piece as well, that no matter who you are, the greatest, one of your greatest ever qualities is to stay humble. And that's that's treating the person that cleans the toilet like you see how you coach your parents. Because we want our players to have every confidence and to strut in the wall. But if their ego is too big and can't fit through the front door, we aren't the club for you, mate. And we're really proud about that. So we need to protect that as well. So that starts that process for us too. And, and I think I got to jump in that because I don't think people completely grasp or most people in the North American context may not completely grasp what you just said, which is if I, if I remember correctly and based on what you just said is that the incoming players into your organization, the rookies, and again, for a North American audience, this would be like having your, your draft class from 2022 coming to camp, having to bring steel toe boots and then work a full like train and then go work in the field doing, maybe you can give us some examples of what you've actually had your players do for a period of time, just to kind of put that into context. It's not just uh, rookies, it's, uh, you know, we, any player. We, we, oh, so he, it's, the, it's the whole squad. Yeah, like we've signed players that have come to us from other clubs that have played 150 games at other clubs. They've got to do exactly the same. And they might be 30 years old, you know, that, that that's just part of how we do it. If you're a new player who joined our club, that's, that's your first two weeks, so... You come in in the morning, you'll do your weights from 5.30am for an hour in the gym and then you you go off to work, you put the steel cap boots on, go off to work on the job site at 7 till 3 and then come back here for a field session at 4pm um, where they you know they then get smashed. So, What kind of job sites are you sending the guys to out of curiosity? Um, as, as hard as we can find is the instruction given to us. So, you, can you, you give some examples of where you've sent them in the past? Digging holes, um, landscape gardening, concreting, shove wheelbarrowing concrete. Yeah, you name it. As hard as we can physically, the, the hardest physical work we can find, that's, that's, that's what it is. So to put that into context again, uh, again, for the North American audience, is that if Tom Brady was a rugby player and he had been traded to the Melbourne Storm, the first two weeks that he would have been with you guys, he would have had a shovel and steel toe boots on and would have digging holes. Absolutely, yeah. yep. And and he probably would have known about it as well because when we do ring our players and, you know, congratulate them and start that dialogue with them, they go, when we, we do say, well, you've got to bring a pair of steel cap boots, and they go, yeah, we, we understand that. That's we, We've signed up for this, and we know that's about, that's about coming to the, your club. That's fantastic. And, and that was actually going to be my next question was, again, I just look back through the last 10, 12 years of you guys, of your organization, and I don't think you've finished lower than fifth in the ladder. And I know that athlete development or player well-being has played a significant role in how you guys approach it or approach the culture of your organization. 
Can you talk about that interplay between the player welfare initiatives that you guys are bringing to bear for your athletes and how you believe that's tied into the broader performance aspects of your organization? Yeah, well, I think, you know, our approach sort of philosophically from in this space was it's not really just me and Peter that look at the the well-being and the care, I suppose, if whatever, if you use the word care for your players, it's it's, I think the strength of our um, organisation is what we call the village approach. So, you know, we have a very strong football department, which, you know, is made up of coaching staff and high-performance staff and medical physios and all those sorts of roles. So it's a, it's really the, the village approach. So everybody has a lot of contact with players every day. So it's about, you know, and we, I guess we all understand each other's roles and, and what we bring to the table. So... As an example, I suppose if a you know, physio is treating a player every day and he discovers that you know the player is not quite the same or there may be something a little bit off, he'll often give us a heads up about that. So then we can sort of pick up that conversation, you know, with the player. And it may be it may be an issue at home. It may be you know he's homesick or you know it could be anything really. That's sort of what we call the the village approach. So it's about a holistic care approach from not just myself and Peter in this role, but but everybody that, you know, the person comes first and the athlete second. And I think that's that's been the strength of our program, you know, over the journey. So when you talk about the village approach, do you work as well with the league office, with the NRL and the Players Association to support your players? Like how do you incorporate those other aspects? Yeah, we do. I guess not so much from a care perspective but yeah obviously you know with the NRL wellbeing function we liaise you know every I wouldn't say every day but certainly weekly around you know the various programs that come from there and liaise with a lot of other club wellbeing staff as well we have a, generally have a couple of conferences a year where it's about you know sharing of programs or things that have worked well because I mean in in our space we don't necessarily look at each other as as competitors you know it's more very common issues that we all grapple with. So it's about trying to how do we how do we all sort of help each other in our in our roles. And you often pick up great ideas from things that people have done at other clubs and you know, you've got to be open to share yours as well. So we do a bit of that and I and I think one of the advantages for us here in Melbourne is as I said before, it's an AFL dominant town. We have a lot of networks in different codes as well that we can tap into and they certainly don't see us as you know, as competitors at all. So, you know, we can we often get insights and welcomed into those organisations to spend time in there and, and we bring a lot of them here as well. So so we're pretty open about all that sort of stuff. But they're not winning as much as you. <laughs> oh, I think we're yeah. um, we're pretty blessed. We've had some really good leaders at our organisation and I think, and people always say, how, how are you going to go this year? And I always say, we'll be competitive just because we prepare and train well and in a roundabout way of explaining that, as I, you know, I get, you know, probably school kids if I'm explaining that, you know, get it across their arms. I said, what you just done then was a learnt behaviour, added up over time, created a habit. You didn't even have to think about it. So the way we program our players is to fold their arms the other way because it's a little bit uncomfortable. So we, we, we program our players when it's under fatigue and pressure. So when games, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. Now, that's in a rugby league scenario, but that can be a, a scenario in your academic life, in your relationship life, that everything you're going to do is because you prepare and train well. When you look at it in terms of your role, you know, Peter, coming at it from a, a, you played professionally for, I believe, seven years or maybe a bit longer. 
How did your experience as a, as a player come into play when you're interacting with them around issues pertaining to you know, player welfare, player well-being? Is it helpful? To what extent does it give you some added credibility in, 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 the, in the conversation? How do you utilize that as part of your background when you're interfacing with your players? Well, when I retired, I was, I'm a baller mugger by trade and I was a shit-ass welder, so I didn't want to go back to that. But I did I had been in the club for a, for a long time and I just wanted to uh, marry to Melbourne. I just wanted to be around the place. And, and I reckon, you know, I'm 47 now and we, we invest in different ways and I've invested 25 years into the club and I've got that genuine keen interest. So I, I think everything I've done in my life, both the good and the bad, has served a purpose. So when you're, when you're sitting down with a player and they're going through some issues and they're sharing with you, I'm never going to tell anybody what and how to, how to fix that. I'm always going to say, hey, listen, I've been in your position at times and this is the way I've done it. Now, I'm not telling you how to do it, but this is, these are the things and the strategy I'll put in place which help me. And because it helps me, it mightn't help you, but these are the things that, that you know, really serve the purpose for me. Then I think when you can have a good alumni like we do and, and the players see that and view that and understand how important it is to our past players as well, that's when you've got all these cultural learnings getting passed on to our next generation because those stories need to be told because they need to continue. And so I think from the past players' perspective, you just doesn't. You don't have to be a past player to work in this space, but that helps that connection from the past and present in that belonging piece. I'm curious, Peter. What do you think, as you and Brian have grown out, grown your program? What programming or event or conversation have you guys? Are you guys currently doing that? You're like, hey, if I had this as a former player, I would have been much better. I wish I did have this program when I was playing. Is there something that you guys have built out now that you wish you had when you were playing? I don't know. What do you reckon? Oh, look, I think the whole sort of space we work in now has really shifted over the, the journey we've been here. You know, in early days, it was about sort of really high focus on careers and education. But these days, I think it's more around the whole well-being and, and mental health space more so than the, I mean, the careers and education is still a really important part of it. But certainly just that well-being focus that, you know, you're a person first and uh, an athlete second. And I think elite sport is really even coaching at that elite level has shifted its focus more more towards that as well. And um, whereas, you know, I think years ago, um, you know, it was probably organisations were a little bit more brutal. So I think players are a bit more comfortable being a bit more vulnerable these days. So, and I think that leads to probably better better performances from those players. So we just try to sort of focus or have our philosophy centred around that really from a whole football department perspective. But that, you know, probably 10 years ago, probably wasn't like that, you know. Probably the footy manager way back, I just recall now when I was playing, he, that, that was his role and he had other roles as well. He was a runner, he was a strapper at the same time. So that's where it's evolved. And because when everyone turns up in our space, they're a, they're a man or they're a woman before they're a player. So we know if we get them, you know, sorted into our organisation and they're organised holistically, as BP said, we know we're going to get a better player. Definitely. I love that you guys keep using the word well-being because I think in the North American context, especially since the pandemic, a lot of athlete development, the focus was a lot on career and education. And now people are talking about it in mental health, mental health. But I think athlete development is more of like the well-being. So when you guys think of, okay, we're looking at the person first, how do you guys like define the well-being? Is it all-inclusive with career, education, mental health? Like how do you guys define at the Melbourne Storm? We're taking care of the well-being of our players. What does that mean to you all? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a bit of everything. Um, careers and education is still an important part of it, and we certainly pretty strongly 
promote and encourage and try to support that as a club but also as a game. It's a big, a big key performance indicator, I suppose. But it's really just that holistic person, you know, the, the well-being encompasses everything. It could be, you know, their relationships, how they're going, their financial situations. They're usually, you know, money makes the world go round, so to speak. So if people are struggling with that through, you know, just not being able to survive or, or whatever, or, you know, whether they, you know, run into, you know, gambling issues or any of those sorts of things, that's a really important part of it and sometimes can be the root of some, you know, well-being ill health if you like but I mean it's really just a spectrum so you know well-being is you know you're on top of the world and the other end is you know sort of deep deep dark times um, we're all on there and we all move along there as things happen to us so it's about just trying to support them so when those negative things come along you they bounce back quickly and, and can move back up the positive end so we just try to take a holistic approach to their to their life and and support them in different areas or make sure they're, they're actually getting support in all areas, really. And I think when they do have those times when they're not well, I think it's refreshing to know that it's okay. And we always encourage, hey, fellas, if you ever come and sit and share with us, it isn't going to go any further and we'll get you in touch with the right people that can help you. And we always encourage that person to, hey, hey depends where they're at. Hey, let's bring, on the, let's bring the coach in on this conversation because you're going to be so surprised at the reaction you're going to get from him because you ain't going to scare him. And then I think once you can come down and, and sit, and get off your chest what you're sitting with. I think that's that's refreshing in itself. And when you encourage that, and you got your teammates and your peers looking out for you as well, that builds a that builds a fairly good culture. Out of curiosity, you guys have been at this since 2006. I believe you guys have been working together since 06, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What have you guys seen happen and change in the field over that period of time in terms of the differences in the athlete development well-being space? The difference in the athletes has it. Have you seen a complete shift? Have you seen some just nuances? What are you guys seeing in the in just in the athlete that you're dealing with, in the issues that you come across on a daily basis? Yeah, well, I think as I sort of touched on before, early days was really a you know our role was really about careers and education, and that was sort of uh, well, that wasn't it entirely, but there's definitely been a sort of a, a gradual shift. I'd probably describe it. I mean, elite sport has just become more and more professional as, you know, one club wins a premiership, the next club's trying to knock them off the following year and looking for that, you know, 2% bit of magic that's going to be able to do that. So it's it's just that continuous improvement. Yeah, I think that applies to any sporting code really that is just there and elite sport has just become more and more professional. There's been more money into the game each year and, you know, it's just become, you know, more, more brutal, I suppose, from an individual perspective. So with that becomes, you know, adds a lot of other pressures as well. And I mean, you know, well-being is a challenge in society. You know, the mental health stats are, seem to be getting worse. You know, I personally think social media has had a big, big impact on that. But, but if that's the reality in society, I think you, when, you, when you're talking about elite athletes, you can add, add a whole lot of other added pressures that are probably a little bit unique for them in terms of just because of the profile nature of, of elite sport. You know, they're, uh, they're going to work, you know, their performance is there for everyone to see on, on national TV. During the week, there's, you know, stresses of, you know, are they managing their diet well enough? Are they sleeping well enough? Are they, you know, when they train, you know, all the training sessions get videoed and are they doing everything right at training? And then, you know, the other pressures of, you know, when an injury comes along or am I getting selected this week or I may be off contract. So I think that they're what I call the other sort of unique, elite sporting pressures that are on top of 
additional sort of or on top of, I guess, every day, you know, challenges that, that everybody faces. So I think it's become more and more over the journey and that's why the, the shift has been more of a focus in, in wellbeing as opposed to just career and education. And I think that's what athletes these days relate to more so as well. You know, they're, they're looking for things that are going to help them cope with everything they have to cope with first and foremost. So, because they know that if they can do that, it's, you know, they're here for their talent. That's why they're, that's why we recruit them because their, their sporting talent is, is a given. It's how they cope with everything else is determines whether they go on and have a successful career or not. I appreciate that. That's great. Duncan knows this is one of my favorite questions. As someone who's just starting out in the field, what is something as you guys train other people in the area of well-being, what is one or like a few things that you think someone should really know coming into the field? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, love, I love this word bifocalism, and it means to look at the same situation from multiple perspectives. So sometimes I just want to see things and deal with things through my eyes. But I've learned over time and I've, I've learned by making a bucket load of mistakes that there's more, more than one way to do a, or go about solving this problem. Yeah, I think everything that you do in life has served a purpose and you draw on those. You draw on those, can you, you can make a better decision going forward. Obviously, you have an industry knowledge. You know, that, that helps, but it's not everything. I think being a good person, I think being a good person, and, and what does that mean? Being respectful. We define that. That's being safe, fair, and kind. And I think the role modelling aspect is so important as well. I know we're extremely mindful of how we carry ourselves because we know our younger players are viewing us. We know they're seeing, if we're saying the right things, we're not only doing that, but are we doing the right things? Are we holding ourselves in integrity? Are we doing the right things and aligning our behaviours with the club's behaviours? And I think that goes underestimated times as well. That's actually a really interesting point. And maybe I could pull the thread a bit further on that. And I, you've kind of alluded to it during the conversation, but how critical is it when you talk about aligning behaviors with the club culture? How important is it for you guys to have the buy-in of the coach, the general manager, the ownership? Is that a, a conscious part of the process that you guys are bringing into it within the store? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It has to be. To be successful, it's got to be. Everybody's got to be aligned and you know, you've got to have strong values as an organisation in just how you go about things and, and everybody has to, you know, whether it's a coach or us in our roles or the physio, we all have to role model those, you know, those behaviours. You can't demand things of your players in terms of, you know, treating people with respect if you're not doing it yourself. So absolutely everybody has to buy in and, and lead lead with that because the players come in, a lot of them are young and that they look at how you go about it and it could be we travel a lot as a team and it could be as simple as, you know, at an airport that you're, you're treating everybody else who's catching that plane with, you know, with respect. You're not pushing in the line because, you know, you're a Melbourne Storm player or, or that's just – and it's helping others and might be helping other people with, you know, or whatever. It's just being humble and respect is probably our number one value as a club and we all have to buy into that and we all have to, you know, make sure we live it. Duncan, we, we created a piece of work. 2018, which celebrated our 20 year history and it's evolved since then. It's called our Watchtower. And to describe it would be probably a higher purpose that's more valuable than money because in life we all want to connect and attach and, and have a belonging somewhere. And that's where the guys can come. And if they work hard enough, long enough, they'll be rewarded. And, and then, then they're a part of our Watchtower. And, and again, I think one of the things just to maybe get you guys to expand on a little bit further, not to, you know, beat a dead horse, so to speak, but 
in order for you guys to have the freedom to operate the way you need to operate to be successful, I got to imagine you're relying on the coach to and the other staff within the environment to to really acknowledge that engaging with you is seen as a positive and not a negative. There's sometimes in a lot of instances if people are engaging with the you know the player welfare staff or the athlete development staff, there's this perception, oh, there might be something wrong with this guy. You know, we're starting to see that switch within the community and that that isn't necessarily the case, but there is sort of that stigma that has been around. And I know from my interactions with your club is that that is definitively not the case. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk to about that, because I think that is a really interesting cultural element of the storm that you guys are seen as a, as a massive asset to the organization and that you guys have room to operate, if I understand it correctly. And maybe I could get you to expound on that a little bit further. Yeah, no, you're right. I think, if, you know, go back a while, that's probably, I think, if you walk past a player was in our office, you know, 15 years ago, whatever, they go, geez, what's he done or what's going yeah. on? The old sideways glance, eh? like, what's this guy going up to, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, now it's not. And the best way to probably describe it is if I go back to that spectrum, that well-being where you've got, you know, people, we're all on there and we're all at different points. So it's about the approaches that we're dealing with everybody, not just the ones that are down. The negative end, it's, uh, it's everybody's involved in, in the whole program. So to walk past an office, you know, you wouldn't know whether it's a, a positive discussion or if it is helping somebody with some sort of issue, you know. It's, it, it, there's no assumptions about that. Uh, there's a lot less assumptions about that these days than probably what they're, what they're used to be. And because, again, that's because everybody buys into the philosophy about the person first and the athlete second. And over the journey, we've helped staff members at the same time so they understand when they come into our office or come into our space that they're going to get supported and that conversation isn't going anywhere outside those walls. And I guess just uh, to kind of put a bow on it then is do you think that the work that you do day in day out with the athletes directly contributes to their performance on the pitch? Well I think we don't sort of try to profess that we you know make them any stronger or or fitter or faster or uh, tackle better or, or any of that sort of stuff. It's a little bit like if, you know, they don't have their things in, in order, they're not going to, they're not going to make the most of the opportunity to reap the talent that they've got and why they've been brought to the club. So, you know, it's about making sure they're in a good space to be able to go out and, and execute the talent and everything that they're trained up from a performance perspective to be able to do. Because if the opposite is true. If they don't, well, then they're not. They're simply not going to be able to um, be able to do that, and, and not going to be able to perform. And then that impacts on the team performance, and that can obviously impacts on the success of the organisation. So, yeah, we don't sort of profess that we're uh, we're you know making them any better in terms of what they do on the field each week, but it's more around the sort of the environment to to be able to support them so they can they can execute what they've got. That makes sense. That sounds like a little bit of the humble and humility of the Melbourne Storm staff that's coming to bear right there. I think you guys would probably have more to do there than you, than you think. But uh, I think that's probably a great place to wrap it up. Again, on behalf of PADS, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We've had a really interesting conversation. Danielle, thank you again for your contribution writing Shotgun. And then uh, again, uh, for you folks that aren't familiar with the Melbourne Storm, get your hard hat and your steel-toed shoes, learn a little bit about them, check them out. Uh, unbelievably successful organization that has had quite the run in the National Rugby League. 
And again, many thanks, Peter Robinson, Brian Phelan. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, a pleasure. Mm-hmm.